in preparing for what we've been studying on the harmony of the Gospels and how they put together, the books that I've read on it, the one we used last week, The Synoptic Problem by Robert Stein, all right, another one, uh, Harmony of the Gospels by Robert Thomas and uh, Stanley Guntry. And then another one that I've read in years past, I've got, I didn't read it for this, but I've got one also um, using the King James text that I've read in, in years past. These are two recent ones that I've read. And most of the information will be in this or in the other, most of them in this, in this two right here. All right, what I did tonight is ran off something from this material here and uh, giving you the uh, the text, not the entire text, but the references to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John showing where they're unique and where they're parallel. And you'll see when you look over the material. And then I've got something I want us to look at that's on the last page when we get to it. But forget about that. We'll just start with the first here. Now, I didn't have time when I was over to number them all. And so you just have to keep them in order. Uh, I don't know because when I ran the copy... I was doing it pretty quick in there while they were doing some other things, and so I don't, I don't know if I got the page number on each of them or not. They give. Uh, I've got one here. Is this yours? Let's see. It's numbered. Yeah. That's yours. Let's see if it's numbered. It is. Okay. All the way through. Yeah. This one's numbered too. No, just the first one is. Okay, can you see, is this, yeah, it's picking up over there, okay. All right, now, look at this. Now, what I want you to do first is here on the very first page, I want you to look at Mark. Forget about the others except through Mark. And I want you to note that, that for everything on Mark, there is a parallel in either Matthew and Luke together or Matthew or Luke. You see that there's absolutely nothing there that's unique to Mark. He's, he's in Matthew and Luke both or in one or the other. All right, now, pull that paper up. And then on the next side, notice over to your left, as you flip that around, your left, uh, starting up for the discussion with the Samaritan woman, look at Mark again. And notice how that uh, there is nothing there that is unique to Mark. Every single reference Either that reference is found in uh, Matthew and Luke both, or it's found in Matthew, or it's found in Luke. Okay? But notice also, you don't see much there unique, uh, nothing there comparable with John. Okay, now, move over to the other side, where it starts out with the application and conclusion, the other side of that same paper, and notice how, look at Mark again. And notice on this page now, you find um, one example, and let's see, only one, right? One example that is unique to Mark. Okay, and that's uh, on number 84 there. One example of something that is unique to Mark that's not in Matthew and Luke. Okay, now, flip on to the one behind that, and look over on your left side again, looking again at Mark, and notice how that uh, right down the line, you've got uh, just one example of something unique to Mark. The healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. Just one example that is unique to Mark. Everything else, it either is in Matthew also, or in Matthew and Luke together. I've not found that. What number is 
Okay, now look to the other side, or I shouldn't say flip, but it's on the other side of that paper to your right. Look at Mark again. Again, nothing there. And but you can just forget about Luke, although you see that it's there. You can see all that material unique to Luke. Okay, now let's go to the next paper. Look at uh, Mark again, and notice how that everything there is either in Matthew and Luke both, or in one or the other, and there's not a single instance where we have anything unique to Mark. Okay, now look to the other side, and uh, you can see the same thing, how that Mark has its parallel either in both of them or one or the other. Okay, nothing there unique to Mark. All right, now, look at the last page, and you've got, uh, look at Mark again, and let's see, there is nothing there unique to Mark except a few statements that are in brackets. That's that last part that's questionable. And that uh, chapter 16, 9 through 11, is not in the earliest manuscripts of Mark. Not in the earliest <coughs> manuscripts. And you can see, looking at all of the other, nothing unique to Mark. Now, forget about the last page. The, it actually has the introduction. So keep that last. Put that back now on your last page. And let's start back at first again. All right, now, what we see in going through Mark is there are a couple of instances where you have something that is unique to Mark. Other than that, you can find every, for every bit, for all practical purposes, you can find every bit of Mark either in Matthew and Luke combined or in just Matthew or just Luke. Okay? Now, you can see why that when you look at it this way, uh, that it, the scholar can obviously uh, come to the conclusion that both Matthew and Luke had a copy of Mark. And this becomes even more obvious when we start to look at uh, some things about uh, the language, that even when we see differences in language in Matthew and differences in Luke, as opposed to what you have in Mark, you will see that the difference is from the standpoint of them making an improvement in keeping with their audience. In other words, that they had something in mind for their audience. And, and so, and, or there may have been, like we noticed last week, uh, Mark wording something that would have been okay for a, a Hebrew or a Semitic reader, but like uh, hate your mother, father, etc., or not Mark on that one, that was Luke on that one. But anyway, him giving something that, that would be not acceptable maybe to a Gentile, okay? So Mark, you, everything in it, you can find in the others, except for just a couple of little instances. Now, once you look at Matthew, we're going to go right through again, looking at Matthew, and you can see that uh, Matthew, although you can find Mark in Matthew, a lot of Mark, Matthew has some unique material to it. Uh, there's some material in Matthew that is not in Mark or Luke either one. Okay? Now flip on over to the next, and on the left side, looking at Matthew again, notice how again you see some material unique to Matthew, and then notice also you see some instances where Mark and Luke have something, but not Matthew. And again, some few other instances unique to Matthew. And look down at the bottom on that left, you'll see where Luke and Matthew uh, had some things in common that are not in Mark. 
book of Matthew with some things in common that's not in Mark. But if you look at that that they have in common that's not in Mark, you'll find it uh, worded different, each with his own personality, and you'll sometimes find the setting is, is a little different. Okay, now look over on the right side of the page. Still looking at Matthew. Notice how you have several things here that Matthew and Luke have in common that's not in Mark. Then you have quite a few things there, starting with number 88 through 92 that is absolutely unique to Matthew. Okay, and a few things after 93 that's unique to Matthew. Okay, let's go to the next page. Looking again at uh, Matthew, you can see that early part there, just about everything Matthew has in common with Mark, but Luke uh, chose not to uh, put that into, into his text. Okay, then we have a few instances of something in common between Matthew and Mark that Luke, that again, that Luke did not put in. That's down at 123. Then you have some material unique to Matthew there at the end. Okay, now look over to the other side and notice how that there's nothing here in this, and this, by the way, is put in chronological order the best that they can do it. Notice nothing in Matthew or Mark, but look at all that material that's unique to Luke. A big body of material that is unique to Luke. Okay, now let's flip to the next one. On the left side, notice again how that you've got Matthew and Mark with nothing, and then you've got a body of material that's unique to Luke. Then you come in with Matthew and Mark together, and then Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we come down Matthew and Mark, straight on down, and then we hit Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Notice how all the way through there, that each of these three have very little in common with John. All right, now, look at the other side of the page. Look at uh, Matthew again, right on down. Not much unique to Matthew over, although there's a few things unique. Most of it, Matthew and, and uh, Mark and Luke have in common with a few things unique to Matthew. Okay, let's go to the next page. Look at Matthew again. You see Matthew in common with Mark, Matthew in common with Mark and Luke, and then you see a few things where Matthew is unique to himself. Okay. So, again, Mark can be found almost in its entirety in Matthew and Luke combined. But then when you look at Matthew, you see that uh, Matthew has some material that's with Luke that's not in Mark, and then Matthew has quite a bit of material that's unique to Matthew. Okay, now let's, again, let's forget about the, the last page there. Let's go back and start again and look at Luke this time. All right, now notice starting off that Luke has a lot of material that is unique to Luke. Okay? Then the rest there is in common with uh, Matthew and Mark. So it's either Matthew and Mark in common or unique to Luke. Notice again how Luke, along with the other three, has very little in that is in common with John. Okay? Now, let's go to the next page. Still looking at Luke on your left column. See how that Luke parallels, but again, has some unique material. Not as much as on the other page. 
And then he has set down at the bottom some things in common with uh, Matthew. Over to your right, looking at Luke, some again, some, some areas in common with Matthew. And then a few isolated things unique to Luke. And then uh, with Matthew and Mark. And then we come on down, and for the most part, he's found in either Matthew or Mark in the other areas. Okay, next on your left, look at Luke again. Just about everything there is in common with Matthew and Mark, with just one, I believe, one isolated instance. And the rest is in common with Matthew and Mark. Okay, over to the right side, look at that. A tremendous body of material, totally unique to Luke. But look, even this material that is unique to Luke, he still doesn't parallel John, even though he's got all this body of material. Okay, now, let's go to the next page. On the left side, still looking at Luke, look how he starts off with material that's unique to him, but still not, not parallel with John. Then he has some material that's in common with both Matthew and Mark. And then unique to him, in common with Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Mark all the way down. So Luke is either unique to himself or in common with both Matthew and Mark. Or over to the right side, again, most of that material in common with the others, some unique material also. Okay, last page again. Look at Luke. Alright, notice out here at the last, you start to have a lot of material in common with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the same, a little bit on the end of the page before it. That's because you're getting down to the, uh, the, the crucifixion. And one thing that all four have in agreement, and that is they put more emphasis on the last week in the life of Jesus than any other part of his ministry. That fully 25% of the Gospels deal with the last week in the life of Jesus. So you can see that all four have a lot in, in common right there. Okay, now let's go back and start again on page one and look at uh, John. And you can see on this first page, almost everything there is in uh, keeping, uh, except that incidents there about John the Baptist. That's interesting. Uh, the statement of John the Baptist is coming on the scene is, parallel all four. Other than that, what is there in John is unique to John. Okay, let's go to the next page. On the left, left side, everything there is unique to John. He doesn't duplicate the other three. Look at the other side. Again, John doesn't cover anything with them to the very bottom there. And then we've got uh, uh, two instances that he's unique with all the other three. All four of them have in common, and that's interesting to me. Anytime you have an event that all four have in common. Okay, the next page on the left side, you can see John has a few areas of, with uh, Matthew and Mark, not with Luke, and then material that's unique. Then he agrees with Luke on one thing, and then material that's unique, but most of John is unique. Then look over to the right, You've got this tremendous body of material here in the life of Jesus, this part of his life, where Luke hits it, and then we've got some unique areas by John, but neither John nor Luke. Uh, are, are They're each unique to one another on every event there. Okay, the next page on the left. Again, if you'll look carefully, you'll see that 
John, most of John is unique to John. And isolated the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, 187. All four have. Okay, now over on the right side, looking at John again, you see again a large body of material through there that's unique to John. And then again, uh, the identification of the betrayer, 214, is in all four. Then some material in common with uh, uh, Luke, and then unique material. And then, again, an interesting thing, the, the three agonizing prayers, here we go, uh, in Gethsemane, we've got them in the first three, and right before that, the second prediction of Peter's denial, though, is in all four. Jesus betrayed, arrested, and forsaken in all four. Peter's denials in all four. First Roman phase before Pilate in all four. But you can see a large body of material there. Even when they're dealing with the same event, the, you see a large body of material unique to John. Okay, now look at the last page. And again, you can see quite a bit of material in common on the last part. And then some material, more of it unique to John even there than any one of the others. Okay, now, put it all back together the way it is. We still have looked at the last page yet. All right, now, what we see is that, uh, that uh, Mark is found in almost its entirety in Matthew and Luke. A lot of places in both Matthew and Luke. And then it's in either one or the other and some. Then we looked and we found that uh, Matthew contains the biggest part of Mark. It also contains some material that is with Luke that's not in Mark, and then he contains his unique material. And then we looked at Luke, and we found that of the three synoptic Gospels, Luke contains more unique material than Matthew or Mark. More material that is absolutely unique to Luke. For example, uh, there are a number of the parables that are in Luke that are not in either one or the other. All right, and so more material there unique to Luke. Luke contains more healing miracles than any one of the Gospels. And again, keep in mind, Luke was a physician. And we noted when we looked at him that he seemed to be very impressed with that. But there are a number of more healing miracles in Luke than is in the other. And more parables in Luke. All right, another thing that Luke stresses. Although all of them point out about Jesus uh, dealing with the outcast. And the, the fact the publicans and the harlots heard him and, and the others did not. Luke put emphasis on this. Think about the prodigal son. And a lot of emphasis on this uh, discourse uh, in the setting. Remember that even where the others deal with some of those events, they don't give the setting the way Luke does. Luke puts his emphasis on the fact that the religious leaders are disturbed about Jesus dealing with the outcast. But so that's obviously something that caught Luke's attention. It was very, very impressive to him that he spent so much time like that. All right, and then we looked at John. And you can see why we refer to the three as the Synoptic Gospels and then to John. John, obviously, was not looking at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, any one when he wrote his Gospels. But you can also see why that scholars believe that John was well aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke because it, it would seem impossible that he would not have duplicated some of that material more than he did. Uh, when we look at the areas that are unique to John, 
and then we look at the Synoptic Gospels, and we read all four very carefully, what we note is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke center on the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. And most of the three and a half years of Jesus, he spent in Galilee. All right, John spends most of his time with Jesus in and around Jerusalem and Judea. And there's a reason for him spending most of his time in Galilee, as we, and John picks this up for us. And that is that every time he went to Jerusalem, they wanted to kill him. Each time that he went to Jerusalem, and, and these big conflicts with the religious leaders always take place in Jerusalem. So with John, you read about Jesus coming out of Galilee and heading into Jerusalem. Then when he gets there, there are these discourses and conflicts and arguments with the religious leaders, the cleaning of the temple, etc. Okay, then, because of the opposition, remember, they tried to take his life, and he had to get out. And I doubt very seriously, unless there was going to be special providential care by God of a miraculous nature, I don't believe Jesus, from what I read, could have lived for three and a half years in Jerusalem. They would have killed him. All right, then he goes back out, and there's something else we know. When he goes into Galilee and does his teaching, it's interesting, in the disciples, all 12 of the disciples, the apostles, were Galileans. And that's interesting, because Jerusalem is where the religious leaders are, that's where the temple is, that's where all the education takes place. And he goes out into rough Galilee of the Gentiles and picks every last one of his 12 apostles. In other words, it's like that he picked some people that on the one hand they had been taught the same erroneous mistakes of the Jewish elders, but they were not seeped in the Jewish learning through their top schools or anything like that. And we're not saying that would have necessarily have kept them because the Apostle Paul was educated in all of that and yet came out of it. But still, it's interesting that he picked all 12 in Galilee. All right, then in Galilee, the, there was one area of Galilee that he was not accepted and spent very little time. And that was in Nazareth. And Jesus was raised in Nazareth. And so that's interesting. That he was raised in Nazareth. But in Nazareth is where they really had problem with the fact that, hey, this is the, uh, the son of Mary and Joseph. His brothers and sisters we have here. And what is this claim that he's making? And, and that's where Jesus made the statement that a prophet is without honor in his own home. That the fact that, that he was common to that area made it very difficult for them to recognize him for what he actually was and also the claims that he had. Now, John obviously a unique gospel and then Luke with a lot of unique material. All right, now if you'll think about the introduction of Luke, that he tells you that he has a lot of other sources before him, plus he has conversed with other eyewitnesses and all. Now, in looking at Mark, if you will read it, the best way to have this make an impression on you, at least it was for me, is to sit down and just read Mark in one evening, and then come back another evening and read Matthew, and then another evening read Luke, and another evening read John. And if you'll sit down and, and, and before you've uh, forgotten one, read the other one and just keep going, you'll see why that uh, the feeling is that Mark was put down first, that it has, the, it has the least amount of literary style to it, the least amount of commentary. And keep in mind, the gospel went out orally. And all this material has been preached orally. And before it was written down, the, the tale of the prodigal son would have circulated orally as it was preached. And all of these miracle stories would have circulated orally. And so as these circulated in little uh, captions, it's as if Mark just simply grabbed the material uh, that has been preached and circulated 
And, it, and it's just simply, it's like you just cutting out material and putting it together. And that's it. And his, his gospel comes across as that way, as he just simply has a lot of isolated events, and he just put it together with the absolute minimum of commentary. All right? Matthew has looked at this. He's an eyewitness himself. Probably there was more than Matthew involved in Matthew's account. In other words, keep in mind that the apostles, just like the prophets of old, they had disciples. Remember Titus and Timothy were two of Paul's disciples. And he wrote to Timothy and he says, Timothy, the things that I have committed to you before many witnesses, you know, you go ahead and, and commit to others. And it was a custom of the prophets all the way through to take their, as they were preaching, to have a lot of disciples that they were working with. For example, when uh, God replaced Elijah with Elisha, Elisha was one of his disciples. And remember, Obadiah had a whole slew of prophets that he was feeding in a cave that was hid away from Jezebel, who was taking their lives. Samuel had prophets that was part of the school that he taught. And so they all did, all the inspired people all the way through. Moses trained Joshua, and Joshua trained others. And remember, Moses laid hands on Joshua before all the people. And, and Jesus, when he sent the apostles out, and again, what they did here was in keeping with the custom of that day, in how they, they schooled. They didn't have formal schools set up like we have. But a teacher like Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or Jesus or one of the apostles, they would be teachers, and then as they were teaching the multitude, these select individuals that had the ability to teach others and who had good minds and all the various qualities that they wanted, they would take them aside. And you read like in the Gospels that Jesus spends a tremendous amount of time with the 12 apostles, and then with the 70, uh, over and above. In fact, a lot of times he preached to the multitude, and then later on he would give the interpretation and do explaining to the, the apostles afterwards. So all evidence would indicate that Matthew, by all that we have, and again, we can't go into, in, in, for our study tonight, into all the sources on this, Matthew would have those that he was training to preach and all too. And the evidence, again, when you read Matthew carefully, and you read the material as it's evaluated by linguist scholars, they can present a good case that, that Matthew definitely, although he may have been the main one, and that's how it got his name, and by the way, in antiquity, your name was put on a book if you did not, if you were the main one. In other words, if you were the one that put it together, and you may have used any number of other people, but your name was, would have been the one that went on it. The same thing with Moses and the first five books. You could have had a lot of help, but it still would be your name. If you were the main one, your name would go on it. And by the way, they didn't put the emphasis on that that, that we do today. And we noted that even when they quoted, they didn't have quotation marks, and it wasn't as big a thing to them as it is to us to get everything exactly right. They just didn't think of it in the way that we did. So Matthew approaches, has this material of Mark. He has, of course, what he has seen with his own eyes, he's well aware that, that Mark is recording the preaching of Peter. And of course, everybody respects Peter, and he's referred to in the New Testament as one of the pillars of the church. And so you can see Matthew... Want to be very concerned at, at just what has been incorporated by Mark in the preaching of Peter. But he takes that material and he adds some explanation to it. And there's some interpretation and commentary involved. Then he adds some material that's not there. All right, Luke probably gives less interpretation and explanation to Mark than Matthew does, but you can understand that. And Luke is more apt to give you the exact rendering. Luke was not an eyewitness. And so you can see why he was less apt than Matthew to interpret 
or make any comments. And that's why the scholars, when they, when you're looking at uh, Luke and Matthew, and you're trying to determine what exactly is the setting and what exactly did Jesus say, Luke would be the one you would respect. That he is, uh, he is as a historian, grabbing the material. Matthew, as an apostle who was an eyewitness, feels very comfortable in making commentary, and that's obvious when you look at it. He, he's very comfortable and 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 taking and putting it in topical order. And, and making any comment he wants, he's very comfortable in that situation. Well, he's an apostle, and he's an eyewitness, and he has been promised the, the gift of the Holy Spirit and all, so you can understand that. All right, so we have Matthew, and by the way, though, if you're studying, when you're studying with somebody who is not yet a Christian and is not yet studying the Bible, although you and I, at our advanced information basis, believe that these writers were guided by the Holy Spirit and all, that stands to be proved to this other person. And you're going to really hurt your basis of evidence if you try to call on that, in my judgment. Use them as, as simply writers. And let's examine the evidence in the same way you would any other evidence in history. Then once you have proved the deity of Jesus from all the evidence of his resurrection, and you've proved these unique features and all, then you can look at their claims to be inspired. But all it is is a claim until you've proven it. And then we can come. In other words, I didn't come to believe that they were inspired because they claimed to be. I just knew they claimed to be. I examined them as four documents in comparison with documents in the Old Testament. And then when I began to see things like prophecy and its fulfillment and a plurality of eyewitness accounts that I could coincide and, and look at all the evidences for the resurrection and, and see the truthfulness of the account itself, then I come to respect the actual claims of inspiration that was made by Jesus concerning the apostles and then also concerning the prophets in the Old Testament. But at first, when you're studying somebody, you're just looking at it in the same way that you would any work in history trying to establish the truth of the material itself. Now, John writes, and you can imagine if, if all three of the other Gospels have circulated and all, and John's aware of this, that there's been a lot of questions that have come about material that's not in the three. And John writes, and he answers a number of the very questions that would be in your mind. In other words, for example, why did Jesus spend all his time in Galilee? I mean, why didn't he, even his own brothers ask him, hey, you claim to be the Messiah, why don't you go up to Jerusalem? And John answers that question very plainly. He lets you know that what happened every time he got to Jerusalem, and, he, and you, you see exactly what happened in the discussion, and you also see that every time he went to Jerusalem that they wanted to take his life. And some other questions. Uh, who was it that, uh, uh, that actually drew his sword? We knew that one of the disciples drew the sword and cut off the ear, but can't you imagine when they read that, uh, people saying, who was it? That would be my question. Which one of the apostles did it? Well, that question is answered. Uh, several other like questions are, are answered with John. And you can see this body of material. Then we look at John and we see what is it that makes John so unique? All right, now one feature above the other three is the fact that he centers his attention on Jerusalem, Judea, and, in part, and his interaction with the uh, religious leaders and all. That's one factor. Another factor is his motive. John is writing... When obviously, and think about not just the Gospel of John, but think about First and Second and Third John. John is writing when the deity of Jesus is being questioned, and even among those who were willing to embrace the miracles and the resurrection, 
This business of him being God incarnate, that's still a lot to take. Keep in mind, from the Jewish mind, Moses performed a lot of miracles. Or a lot of miracles were wrought through Moses. Miracles were wrought through Joshua. I mean, you try to top a sea and a river, uh, stop flowing and the waters building up on both sides. And there were some things, are, are the Israelites being fed and clothed for in a miraculous way for 40 years. It'd be pretty hard to top so the miracles that actually took place in the in the Old Testament. In fact, I don't know of anything in the miracles that, that would top them other than this fact of the raising from the dead that comes about so often in the New Testament. So they have this, but Jesus didn't claim just to be a prophet. He claimed to be God himself. All right, so John zeroes all his attention on the fact that Jesus was God. And in these interesting discussions that take place between Jesus and the religious leaders, John makes it very clear that the part they had problems with was his equality with God. And when you read the context there, where they really have their problem is this business of being equal with God. That's why that if you're studying with somebody, <clears throat> such as the Jehovah's Witness, that deny the equality of Jesus and God, the best way, you just can't beat it, is just simply to say, hey, let's sit down and let's just study John. Start at verse 1, chapter 1, and study through John and just see exactly what it says. And you're going to keep asking the question over and over that the Jews that were there listening to Jesus, what did they think he was saying? And over and over and over, there's no question, they thought he was claiming to be equal with God. And that was their, that was their problem. That's when they want, wanted to kill him. And that's when they would finally, all four would agree, want to execute him. Okay, so we have the, these differences. And yet now I want you to turn to the last page, pull it on front. And as we have these very unique differences in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John sitting over there, very unique, there is no question now that you've got four distinct editors involved. Nobody would deny that. There's also no question that you've got material for more than just four people. And for example, in the early church, there was, it was totally accepted that uh, Mark's gospel was the preaching of Peter as recorded by Mark. And also, we've got evidence, and we're not going into that for our study tonight, we'll get a little bit into that next week, of other documents that are involved in the materials itself. But you've got the minimum, everybody agrees, of four editors involved. All right, now, look at this on the, the parts that I've got uh, circled and underlined here. The similarities, and this is the interesting feature. The similarities, of course, are most evident. Number one, all four works deal with the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Number two, all four portray him as one who was uniquely sent from God. Number three, all of them portray him as one who worked numerous miracles. Number four, all of them portray him as teaching a very noble ethic, the highest the world has ever heard. Number five, all four portray him associating with the outcast of society. Now Luke may have put emphasis on this, but that's the portrayal in all four. Six, all four portray him as drawing upon himself the hatred of the Jewish religious leaders. Seven, all four portray that it was by design, the design and plan of God crucified and raised from the dead. Okay? That his crucifixion, his resurrection from the dead was the design and plan of God. It didn't just happen. 
Number eight, all clearly claim that this Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Number nine, at times all four Gospels record the same events. For example, the coming of the scene of John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. Next, the anointing of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, all four. The cleansing of the temple, all four. The feeding of 5,000, all four. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem, all four. The denial of Peter, all four. Yet it's likewise obvious from even a cursory reading that there are also differences between these four Gospels. And it could have mentioned there that when it comes to the death, burial, and resurrection, all four put their emphasis in that particular area. Now, let's pause and think about what we've got. We have Jesus portrayed by four authors using a plurality of sources. We've got uh, two eyewitnesses, one who got all his material from a chief eyewitness, and then a fourth who is a Gentile, well-educated historian who has reviewed uh, materials and other materials that have been written, uh, definitely uh, seemed to have Mark in his hand, and who also was acquainted with the other apostles. Remember, he was a companion to the Apostle Paul. And then you've got, of course, John and his very unique handling of the gospel itself. All right, so you've got these four men, four distinct personalities. Any linguist can take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John and tell you you've got four <coughs> different works here, four different people responsible. Each of them are brazen and bold enough to incorporate material that is unique. Okay? Because I'm saying, even though you find Mark in Matthew and in Luke, you can tell what is unique to Mark. And you can tell what they do with that material. And so, you can find unique material to Matthew. A lot of unique material to Luke. Mark's material, very unique, and found in Matthew and Luke. And then a tremendous body of material that is unique to John. Some events, they hit on all four and yet they're not backward about using their own language. Like, for example, Matthew's not backward at all in commenting on Mark or changing around a little bit. And then, of course, we have John in this very unique way. Now, try to conceive of a situation where four people could do what has been done here. And those documents circulate at the very time when the events happened and the people were alive. Think first now of those things we just read at the end that they have in common. All of them portray the same Jesus. Now, can you imagine four different people with four personalities and all conveying, even on unique areas, the same personality? I mean, that's the, the, the same the way. In other words, when you read something that is unique in John, the average person all through the centuries has read these four Gospels and has not noticed the differences that you and I have talked about. The reason we notice it is because we have looked at this material and taken it out. The people that have noticed it have been the scholars who have read and reread Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The average person would read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John through and would notice some things that were unique to each one, a lot of things the same, but they really wouldn't even think anything about the difference. It would be almost like one story because of, of such a perfect job they do of giving us exactly the same personality. In other words, when John 
or when Jesus responds to a situation in John, whether he's arguing with the religious leader, whether he's given a teaching, whether he's performing a miracle, it's obviously, this, even though it's unique to John, it's obviously the same personality that you've read over here. In other words, if he's performing a miracle, what kind of miracle is it? It's always an obvious one that's before the public and obviously circumvents the laws of nature. Number two, it's always done for the purpose and only the purpose of proving that he is somebody special. So those features are involved in every miracle in John and every miracle in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Never do we find Jesus just out performing miracles just to wow people or to astound them. We, we never find this great big advertisement about Jesus the miracle worker or, or anything of that nature, you know. Everything is done in a very dignified way and for a purpose. When he responds to anyone, he, his words are judiciously picked. And what I mean by that, uh, there is an economy of words with Jesus. He says the, the maximum with the least. One characteristic, if you were to take, in fact, I had a course many years back under Brother Baxter at Lipscomb where we just looked at the teaching of Jesus that's in all four and looked at for unique characteristics, even when you're dealing with different teachings. Try to think of anything that Jesus taught that's recorded in any of the four where you could shorten it and not take something away from it. In other words, I'm wordy, okay? We are wordy. If you read from uh, writers, you find that some writers are so wordy that you can just glean and get everything they've got to say by, by gleaming it. Uh, I remember years back when I read, was required to do, read a book by Thomas Wolfe that one of the things I noticed through after chapter one is how wordy he was. He spent three pages talking about nothing. Jesus, a characteristic, and, and see again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had their individual personalities. Mark is right to the point. Matthew is a little more wordy. But they all portray Jesus as being an individual that judiciously uses words. He says everything in the briefest amount of time and space, and, and you find it difficult to improve on what he has to say. All right, now think of something else. In the discourses portrayed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus is handling a question. Now, we've all heard the president handle questions. <laughs> And we know that before he gets up there, they drill him and drill him and drill him and drill him and drill him. He's still uncomfortable. And even with them drilling him, after he gets through, the commentators can always think of better ways that he should have handled. And his own critics. And remember the debate between the presidential candidates. And each time, their own people could think of better ways that certain things should have been handled. I mean, it is difficult. Now, I've been involved in... Was it four or five, at least four, maybe five, religious debates where you're up there and, and doing it extemporaneous. And with all the drilling and with all the help, and I had a lot of drilling, I had a lot of help, and I spent hundreds of hours studying, there wasn't a single debate that I had but that I could go back and find areas where I could have improved what I said. And I'm sure the other fellow felt the same way. The... Anybody that's ever debated would have to appreciate that every single time that Jesus is in a discussion, he comes out on top. And, and his audience is always, like whether it's the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're always taken back with the way he handles anything. He, he has the perfect answer for the situation. And if they're like he's mingling with the people, 
Keep in mind, Jesus didn't go out with planned sermons. And he's not, he's not, Jesus didn't write anything. He's out here mingling with sinners. And man, they get all over his case. And, and, and who are, this guy can't be who he claimed to be, you know, or he wouldn't have anything to do with these people. And, and here it comes. And the lady who lost, had ten coins and lost one. And then the prodigal son. And think about the, the beauty of that prodigal son. And, and, and how much teaching is done in that little short, any one of us could tell the story of the prodigal son right now. And, and his all of his parables, I would say I could mention parable of the sower, any number of them, and you could tell. You know, you wouldn't get every word perfect, but you'd get the essence of every one. But see, those parables came in response to problems. And they just came, they just come in response to the problem itself. He sat in Simon's house. And a woman comes in, and, and he, in advance, you know, she comes in, and well, he would have known because you and I believe, obviously now, that, that he's God incarnate, he's got the Holy Spirit, but keep in mind, let's just look at it from the standpoint of a person who comes, doesn't even realize this, and you appreciate it even more, that uh, here is this woman who comes and starts washing his feet, and she's a person that has a reputation as a harlot. You have both of them. Which one of them will love you the most? Well, Simon didn't have any problem with that. He said, that's right, Simon. He says, this woman was forgiven a great debt, and so she loves much. Simon and some of the others didn't realize the big debt they had, and they didn't appreciate as much the forgiveness that they got, got from God. All right, they're, they're challenging his claim to be God. They all have the old scriptures. Every last one of them have that same Old Testament that you and I have got. The New Testament hasn't been written yet. And he asked them, whose son is he? the Messiah, and they, the son of David. Every Jew would have said that. But there's not a single solitary Jew alive that day from all the works of Josephus and Philo and all the Jewish writings. There's nobody that would have grabbed this next statement, and yet it was in the Psalms. He pulls it right out of the Psalms, and he said, well, if he's the son of David, why does David in the Spirit call him Lord? When he says, the Lord said to my Lord, then he says, now if David calls him his Lord, how is he his son? Of course, there's only one way that that can happen. That's through the virgin birth. And nobody can answer that. And yet they knew it was there. And so they turned and walked away. So it was the perfect, the absolute perfect statement. But yet that use of the Psalms in all the Jewish commentaries, they wrote commentaries just like we do today. <coughs> nobody had ever explained that. Nobody understood it. When they read in the Psalms where David was calling the Messiah his Lord, you know, and yet he was his son. The Lord said to my Lord, who are these two lords? The Jews only had one God, so the Jews just ignored that. Nobody could explain it, and yet it perfectly fit into his situation. When they come and they try to catch him in something, and they know, they want to know by what authority he's doing it, he knows that if he claims by God, that at that point they've got a group ready to stone him to death, if he claims equality with God at that point. And so he says, okay, he knew that, every, that they, every, all the multitudes thought John was a prophet. And if they denied it, they'd be ready to stone them. So he just turned around and asked them a question. He says, you answer mine and I'll answer yours. They wouldn't do it. He said, okay, I won't answer yours either. And he goes his way. He knows exactly who to talk to. He knows exactly how much to say. And all the time he's, he's, he's in an environment. Now, to really appreciate the teaching of Jesus that's coming forth in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've got to keep in mind... Jesus was a Jew too. Remember his, to show you he wasn't brought up having been taught that, 
His own brothers didn't believe in him. The teaching of Jesus is unique to Jesus in the sense that there is no writer, there's no material that we have coming forth from that day that teaches what Jesus taught. Now you can't say that for any person who's ever wrote in history. Read Plato and you'll see the influence of Socrates. Read Solomon and you see the influence of the Law of Moses. Nothing unique. Now Jesus may have used the Law of Moses, but I'm saying the concepts are all in the way that he handled everything is unique to him. Whether he's telling what the greatest commandment is, and yet, and yet it sounds so right to it, even though it's unique to him, or this whole business of him being God incarnate, there was nothing in Jewish thought that would have ever said that God was... See, they wouldn't have found that hard to understand. There was nothing there. He was told, That was totally foreign to Jewish thinking, the fact that this would be God incarnate. Now the question becomes, how did four people come up with this same personality and this same thing of God coming to earth and then God being crucified and God being raised from the dead and he's handling all these situations in that way. How do four people even come up with that situation with the harmony and the agreement that we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John? All right. If you didn't even have the Old Testament, you've got something in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that you cannot show in any of the other writings of history. There's nothing that would even compare with it. But then you take and you, you look at the rest of the New Testament... <laughs> Where would Acts be without Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Where would Paul's letters be? Where would all the rest of the New Testament be without Matthew, Mark? They, they have no basis for existence. And they are all in agreement on, on that material that we have there. Now, try to think of the Old Testament without Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You read Isaiah 53 and you're in the same boat that uh, the eunuch was. When he's reading from Isaiah 53 and he says, who is this man speaking of, of himself or somebody else? That's exactly what I would think if I didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But yet when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you say, hey, you could put this as a summation. And it would fit in perfectly as a summation of, of, of everything. So there, the Old Testament, the part applied to the Messiah, becomes almost impossible to understand. Without, in fact, all you have to do is look at the Jews today who try to understand their Old Testament without Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The truth is, the Jewish scholars can study the Old Scriptures all of their life in the Hebrew, and they will never understand it without Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, that's the only way anybody's going to under, understand it. Okay, putting all, thinking of that now, in all those unique features, we can see that, that you can make a stronger argument for the truthfulness of these accounts than anything that's ever been written in history. In fact, you'd have to say if, if this was not going to be accepted as truth, then you shouldn't accept anything as truth to be consistent. The person who tells me that, that we cannot deal with this as historical facts, then you would have to say that there is nothing, absolute nothing in history that you ought to deal with this fact. I mean, you're going to have, because you're thinking about this in a totally different way. If you're going to think about anything in history as historical fact, there is nothing that you can handle. And, and I, mean, I mean even people as recent as Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, you simply cannot handle them in the way that you can this material right here. Okay, any of y'all have any comments or questions?
questions over what we've covered so far. One thing that you said I'd never thought about and heard before is that Matthew, do you think that to, in his his gospel, his, his writings of his gospel, he had other people write part of it and he may not even done any of the writing at all himself, possibly. But it's a possibility he could have uh, he could have written some. He wouldn't have had to. He could have dictated. For example, the Apostle Paul. Paul dictated most of his letters, and just like we even have uh, when he writes one, like Galatians, he's writing a short letter and he says, "See what's how big." If you read in the Greek letters, I am writing. The others he signed it, and he made it clear that you know he knew it by his signature. But Paul is dictating, and some of the some of the difference uh, in the material itself uh, between one letter and another letter could be determined by, by who they're being dictated to. Obviously, if, if Paul is dictating to one man one time and another man another time, there's going to be that mm -hmm. slight difference. And the same thing with Matthew. There would have been the possibility that Matthew didn't write any of it, that he dictated. Now, you can be confident of the authorship of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from this standpoint, the, the early church, and, and I'm talking about, when, I, when we say the church fathers, we mean those people that were converted while the apostles were still alive. From those people, we have over 1,500 letters that go right back into the time of the apostles themselves. They were unanimous in acknowledging the, the authorship to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, in fact, we can't uh, say that about the other writings in the Old Testament or New Testament either. This is one thing that they were absolutely in total agreement of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and giving them credit. Well, then, as uh, a number of conservative scholars have pointed out concerning some of the liberal thinkers who, who have gone back and tried to pose doubt in some, serious, in some areas and all, it's pretty hard to imagine how a person sitting 2,000 years from the event can have more uh, information than the hundreds of people that were right there in the first century living at the time of the apostles and who readily, without any argument whatsoever, gave credit to John and to Matthew and to Mark and, and to Luke. It's, it's just, it's just hard, hard to imagine that kind of audacity. And the interesting thing is, they don't do it with anything else. The, the, um, we talk about Socrates. Socrates never wrote anything. We learn about Socrates from the writings of Plato, most of it in a book called The Republic. And, and, and we've got one author telling us something about Socrates, and we just grab it without reservation. We've got a plurality of authors, and then so far as the endorsement of it, another interesting feature, these Gospels, in those 1,500 letters that I mentioned by the early church fathers, they quote almost the entirety of those four Gospels. I mean, there's just a few isolated verses that's not there. They quote the entirety of it, and they quote it as Scripture. In other words, that they were quoting it with respect and authority, even though there were all kinds of other materials circulating. This is what was quoted with authority. Now, we go back and we look at the, the church fathers, and... And, and look at them from the standpoint of how they determine authenticity 
And whether or not they was going to receive something as inspired of God. And they were not, keep in mind, they didn't have, uh, printing press has not been invented, no computers. They didn't have the sophisticated means to lay everything side by side in the way that we do now and say, for example, that uh, here is Luke's vocabulary and here is Mark's vocabulary. And Luke has a vocabulary that's 350 or so words richer than Mark. They didn't have that kind of sophistication. To them, authority resided in, is it a work of an apostle? Or was it endorsed by an apostle? And there were other materials about Jesus that went out, just like John said, that many other miracles did Jesus do, which are written. But the point is, the only thing they were going to receive as scripture, it either had to be under the direction of an apostle, him being the author of it, or endorsement. All right, you've got, again, Matthews was received because of an apostle, John because an apostle, Mark because it was the preaching of Peter. And that's the way they accepted Mark. If it, if it had been just Mark by himself, it was because it was the preaching of Peter. Luke was accepted because he was such a close companion of the Apostle Paul for a, num for a number of years. And Paul's endorsement went to the writings of Luke and also the book of Acts. And so it was because of apostolic endorsement that they so readily and quickly received. All right, the books that were debated in their mind were those that you, you had to prove that Apostle had a part of it. So you, you, when you think about the authorship of these books, and you go back and read the writings of the early church father, and you see the, the premium that they put on apostolic endorsement, and they were the ones living at that time. Another thing you find out that helps you to really appreciate Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the other writings of the New Testament. We sometimes try, or the liberal scholar has, try to pose doubt by showing all the debate that took place, say over 2 Peter or 1 Peter or these or the other writings of the New Testament, rather than cast doubt, it ought to cast faith because it shows you those people didn't just receive anything. They were very legalistic, very legalistic in, in, in determining what went into the New Testament itself. And man, they debated and presented their arguments and nothing was accepted except it won out in the debate among the intellectuals who were aware of all of that material at, at that particular time. But of all of the Bible, Genesis through uh, Revelation, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John stands on the firmest grounds. I'm not, I don't mean to cast doubt on the other. I'm just saying that even though you can deal with each individual book there, and you can deal with it in its entirety, you can't deal with anything in the Bible with the kind of evidence that you can Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's interesting because you would expect that, and that's the life of the, of the Savior. And when it comes to the resurrection, uh, Urban Linton, in his book, A Lawyer Examines the Bible, on page 50, made the statement that uh, of all the events that he was aware of in history, that there never had been an event so substantiated by a variety of quality evidence as a death, burial, and, and resurrection of Christ. Is Mark the least? Um, the vocabulary in Mark is the most shadow. In other words, the fewest words uh, in, in the vocabulary. And it's, it's very to the point and with no uh, least amount of elaboration or anything like that. And, but there again, keep in mind that uh, Mark is uh, giving you the preaching of Peter. And, you know, that uh, remember the statement that was made concerning the apostles that they were unlearned men. And that was one of the things that fascinated when Peter preached. 
But one of the things that fascinated others is that he was unlearned. He was not one with formal education, such as the Apostle Paul. All right, here's another interesting thing, too, that the Matthew, being a tax collector, and would have to be a keeper of books and, and have sent information to Rome and, and dealt with all the record of the people, you're obviously dealing with a man who can read and write if he was a typical educated Jew of that day. In fact, it would be hard to imagine Matthew not being fluent in both Greek uh, and the, uh, the Hebrew. It would be pr pretty hard to imagine that in that setting of that particular day. And so you, you have a certain amount of education in Matthew. In Luke, he is a physician. And again, it's obvious from his writings, it's, it's obvious that, that Matthew has more education than what we see in Mark. It's also obvious that Luke does. And when we get now to Paul, there's no, even somebody that is a total infidel would tell you that when you read Paul, you're reading from an extremely well-educated individual who not only knows the old scripture, but he knows the philosophy and the poets and the writings of that day, that he's a very, very well-educated man. Since there's very little unique to Mark, most of it's covered in the other Gospels, I think there'd be a possibility that he just... Um... No, Mark is unique. In other words, I'm saying the interesting thing about Mark is although it's in Matthew and, and uh, uh, Luke, it is unique. Yeah, but I'm... I'm, at, what I'm well, I, I didn't word it right. Uh, since, it's since the same things are covered in the other two Gospels, do you think that he got most of his possibly um, just by hearing and listening and, and possibly he didn't write his either? But well, the only thing, the record in the early church was that it was written by Mark as preached Peter's by Peter. Sermon. And uh, the, uh, in other words, all, all the statements uh, give credit as something that was preached with Mark, um, you know, whether he took notes, whether he wrote down, again, uh, uh, from the standpoint of the spiritual gifts, uh, the only gift that, keep in mind that there's nothing original can't, coming out of these people, that they're talking about things that were witnessed and heard. The, the gift of discernment, just like Jesus promised the apostles that, that I'll give you the Holy Spirit and he will bring to your remembrance all uh, that I have said. In fact, it's interesting, we can only speculate on a lot of things, but uh, we know today that, that hypnotists can hypnotize people and cause them to have vivid collections of things that they have seen. In other words, vivid recollections. In other words, that uh, the information is there. And if you'll think about your own memory, by saying certain words, I trigger memory in you. Uh, you know, and, and you me. And certain little events will trigger. Uh, I might mention a, somebody you knew that you're a senior in high school, and all the events surrounding that person will just pop in your mind. And so the brain's a fantastic thing, and so it, obviously, given uh, God is our creator and all, that, that it, uh, of all the things the Holy Spirit has done, I'd say, that to me, that would be the easiest to understand. You know, we may not understand the mechanics, but the triggering of the actual memory itself, and that's all it would have taken, is memory and discernment. Now, there's another interesting similarity on the four Gospels that, uh, as they write, all of them have the same characteristic of brevity, all four. And, and John even seems to make it, he says, many other miracles did Jesus do. And, and you think of how few we have in John. And many other, but these are written that you may believe, and believe and you might have eternal life. And then John goes on to say, 
that he didn't think the world would contain the books that ought to be written. And so all evidence is, is John is writing under restraint, that he would have liked to make that book a lot bigger. And this is, this is what, he, what the constraint from the Holy Spirit was, is to give it right there. And of course, obviously, what we've got is, is perfectly the way that God wanted it. Well, what about John's vocabulary and all? When I look at, at some of the writing, of, well, the book of John, but also Revelations, it seems like you get a lot more thought or there's a lot more, I don't know what the right word is, uh, abstract thought that mm -hmm. comes through in his writings. Okay. Number one, you're dealing with, in Revelation, a lot of apocalyptic material. A lot of that was dictated, or it seems it says the angel said, write, okay. write this but, thing. But then as he writes, what John actually uh, saw was a vision. Mm -hmm. right. What John sees is one thing, and then he describes that vision. And so in, in his vocabulary and all is being used to describe that vision. All right? And the figurative language that's used <coughs> is language that, keep in mind, obviously, these people were extremely well-versed in the Old Testament. Uh -huh. all right? There's one thing they all have in common, and that is the use of the Old Testament and the fact that they are well-versed in it. And so uh, John, when he uses some of the symbolic uh, language, and the idioms and all this material that is used in a consistent way in the Old Testament. And Jesus, when he talked about the destruction of Jerusalem, wasn't pulling any unique terms. He's talking to people, to Jews, who are very familiar with, with all that terminology. Now, there are... John's writings were challenged for years on the, uh, the, in comparison to the others because of some feature, this contrast of light and darkness and the logos, or word, and so it was said that, that those concepts were not developed right in that period. In other words, the question is, where did John get these concepts? Because when he says, like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, he's not quoting Jesus. He's telling something there. The question is, where is this concept itself coming from? Because it's characteristic of all the writers to use <coughs> concepts that are developed. And, and actually, when you write, you're conveying to somebody you want to understand. And so obviously, you're going to pick concepts that they already are familiar with. And so the question is, where did John get this? Because they said, we don't have these concepts until years. And in fact, they tried to put John on down past the first century. And then, of course, up until recently, all of the, uh, the I shouldn't say all, but a majority of what we had put the Synoptic Gospels before 70 AD, and John was always up there in those writings. And again, they was trying to give, if it wasn't because of the, the external evidence it was the internal statements that uh, had concepts that they said we just didn't have at that point in history. All right, what happened though was the Dead Sea Scrolls, 1947. And here we come, for example, with this so-called teacher of righteousness that, uh, that, that did the majority of the teaching among them. And uh, we find all of these concepts among the Essenes that John uses. And so now we know that Every last concept that John used was in use at that particular time. We just, it was sort of like for years they said uh, the Hittites and the Jebusites are just myth, you know, because we can't find any record of them. And then all of a sudden the record came in. Well, that's what happened to John's gospel. For years, the John was attacked simply because they could find no parallels with those concepts and the other writings that they've had. But, but when you think of that, remember also 
that archaeology is, as we know it, is very recent. Only in a little over the last 130 or 40 years have we come forth with all these archaeological discoveries. In fact, uh, it's only been in recent years that we've learned to decipher these languages now. In fact, there's been several people involved in literally spending their entire lives to decipher some of these languages. We had all kinds of material that we dug up, and you couldn't do anything with it because nobody could read the language. And it's only been in recent years that the, we've learned how to decipher the language itself. And then as we did, that's why that uh, the, one of the books that uh, I think I've showed you all on, the, uh, the Scriptures on the Stones by an Oriental, and he pointed out that uh, now that people are putting John, all his writings, before 70 A.D., because every last one of those concepts have been found. I noticed that all four of them record Judas betrayal, but then only one of them record his um, remorse and his um, hanging himself. That was, what, Luke? And also in Acts, you've got a statement there. Um, but on the writings, you know that... Matthew, for example, one that records his remorse and suicide. And Luke in does record in, in Acts. Acts All right, and see, as far as the manuscripts go, in antiquity, uh, Luke and Acts are together. Oh, really? It's one work, yeah. They're always right. found together. Hmm. Uh, so they just separated according to what was talked about in Jesus when he was uh, living, right? Just the gospel. Did they separate? I'm talking about Luke and Acts. How did they? If it's all just one? Oh no, he wrote two books. But I'm uh, saying the early in the earliest manuscripts that we have. See, they didn't have all. They're all 27 individual documents. But I'm saying we always, they always had Luke and Acts together. In other words, they put them together, showing that they understood that Luke was the author of both of them. And that's the way they would have, were read, was Luke and Acts. I think you can see also from this that if you're uh, studying with somebody that is uh, uh, not a Christian and you'd like for them to read one of the Gospels through, the best one is Luke to start with. Because you you got all of Mark, all for all practical purposes, and you've got a lot of unique material. You've got it put primarily in chronological order, and you've got it written from the standpoint of a Gentile who is doing it as the work of, of history. And so that uh, that Luke is your best one, followed by John, and then then you would go with Matthew. In other words, the one you would be easiest to leave out uh, would would be Mark. But then on the other hand. Mark is good from the standpoint it is the shortest, the quickest, the easiest, and to grab somebody's attention. You know, Mark is something you can sit down and read in just no time. And, and you grab somebody's attention with this bang, one miracle right after another, and this man of power who is, who is in control, and, and then of course coming to the resurrection and all. But uh, when we've, uh, in fact, when we was in the Northeast, and we had our study like this, and we had one evening where we had people primarily that were not Christian, and then we had another evening where the Christian, we were studying Christians and we would study like, you know, something like this, you know, in a deeper way. The best way that we found to study with somebody who's not a Christian was uh, 
to have them read the Gospels. And we'd just start out like with Luke, and we'd read it. But then as I was reading Luke, I'd use it as my basis. Then I'd bring in, I'd have them reading Luke, and that was it. But then when we gathered to study Luke, I would bring in things from Matthew and Mark and John, and then also Old Testament prophecies and everything. I'd bring that in, but all I'd have that. They would get the benefit of all by just reading Luke. And we found that there's just simply no better. And even today, they can, they can talk about all the gimmicks they want and all their little testimonies and everything they want to. There is just no better way to study with somebody that's not a Christian than to start with the four Gospels and to use that. And, and of course, that's exactly what happened in the, in the first century. It's interesting. I, I'm trying to remember where I read this. Charles Colson, uh, involved with Watergate and converted in prison, and man, his was a sincere conversion. He's got a tremendous prison ministry going right now. But anyway, he's been on speaking engagements all over the world, and I was reading about a tour he had just made in, uh, in India. And what he was saying, he was being critical of Christians in the way that we spread the faith. And he said, we put too much emphasis on personal testimony and telling like what Jesus has done. But he said, that's fine if you're with other Christians, everything like that. But when you get, he says, this was interesting to him, because he said he had an experience too, that he believed, and he believed Christ was working in his life and everything like it. But he said he got over there and said these uh, Hindus, he gave the various, uh, or they are the, the people in India were the Hindu religion. But see, the Hindu religion believes that all paths lead to God. So they're ready to listen to a Christian or anybody, because all, path all paths are going to God. And so he got a pair with a number of others, and they each gave their testimony, and he said, he noticed that when he gave his personal testimony of what Jesus had done for him and how many men, how much that uh, Jesus meant to him at all, they listened to him with a certain amount of courtesy and interest, just like they did everybody else. But said, then he got into the reason why he believed that Jesus was the Son of God, and he got into the resurrection and the evidences for the resurrection from the dead and, and the eternal life, and he said, all of a sudden, he had their attention more than any other way. And he said, it didn't just dawned on him as he got to thinking about it afterwards. The resurrection is unique to Christianity. Mohammed still has a grave over there. Nobody, uh, Moses is, is dead. There is absolutely no religion in the world where the founder made the claim he would come forth from the dead. And, and then he was so successful, his followers weren't convincing others that he did. And he pointed out, when you see over there, those people don't have the lifespan that we have. And they bury a whole lot more of their children than we do. And death is something that's real close to them. And he said that was the interest point for the local. And then he, in his article, he said he believed the Christians all over or that he, were too quick in talking with people that were not Christians to give your personal testimony. He said, what did that do for him? That's not evidence. That may or may not be so. And then that all people have these various things that they believe have happened in some ways that what we ought to be doing is presenting the evidence for the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You think that's one reason that a lot of people today aren't as concerned about religion at all? We've, we've got our old people, we put them in rest homes and get, and get them away from us where we don't have to watch the suffering and the death and we're kind of isolated from it. And you don't, you don't, I don't run into people that are, that act real concerned about dying. It, it, we're, uh, 
I was reading an article some time back on, on that very thing you're talking about, Mark, that uh, this was a couple of years back. He pointed out that in the first century, you know, there are no funeral homes all through the years. The person died, it's just like I can remember my great-great, uh, my great-grandfather died. He just got sick. And he come in, he laid down, he went to bed. And everybody waited for him to die. And, and, he, and, and the, hot, the doctor came to the house and gave him some medication to take away the field. There was no CAT scans or anything of that nature. And uh, he laid there for a period of about a week or so, and then he died. And, we, and, and uh, there was no nurses. The family took care of him during that period of time. And then, uh, of course, we were all, everybody was involved in the burial hall. When you go back all through the centuries, the family had to make the casket many times. They had to go out and dig the hole or other people, whatever. It was a community type thing where they dug the hole and they, they made the casket and all. They had to prepare just like, look at Jesus when he died. His, who was going to prepare him for the burial? His own disciples were involved in that, and they were going to prepare the body for burial and everything. They wouldn't turn it over to a mortuary or anything. Well, the family always did that. And so death was a real part of their life, and they experienced all the suffering and everything. And today, we do everything we can to separate ourselves from suffering. I mean, we you're right. We, when people get old, we want them over here you know, away from us. And then also with the hospitals and everything like that, you know, it's, it's I mean, I'm, I'm not putting down hospitals or anything, I hope you don't misunderstand right. well, yeah. but I'm saying the very nature of it, it tends to isolate us in, in some way from the actual, and we make it as easy on the family as possible. Then what happens the moment they die, but just like when my stepfather died, the uh, funeral home takes him, next time I see him, he's in a nice suit, and, and that's it. And the, the fa they handle the burial and everything. And I'm sure that uh, from young people up, it doesn't make near the impression on you as if you did it. But see, another thing we do that on the other side that has made death almost a torture in some ways, before they had all the gadgets they had now, when people got sick, they did die. Well, now, I mean, really, the family oftentimes has a person that, that has no life yet left. But the mechanic, the uh, gadgets they have, maybe can keep that person alive for weeks and weeks and weeks, and so and they've got them in a position where there's no. You would have to quit your job and everything. Of course, that's an impossibility. So it's a, it, it's really just an, an awkward type thing. I think that we all deal with. I think another area that causes some of the same things is people don't have to kill animals to eat anymore. I mean, we've got butchers and. And that's one thing, when I run into people that, that are, you know, I hunt, and when you shoot an animal, you, a lot of times you have to watch it die. And that gives you, a, I think, a better appreciation of, of where all our food comes from. And people say, well, I could kill something like that, but yet they can sit down and eat beef or chicken or any of those, any kind of meat, and don't have any problem at all about eating it. And they talk about the blood and the gore and all that. Well, they don't have to participate but just a few years ago most of the people in America even lived on farms and they would kill chickens and hogs and cows and that and that too I think in being involved in that type of a process gives you an idea of, I mean you see those things have to die and all and, and it people, to me it, it it does several things with the, the animal dying and I think I think that's an important point and, and obviously in the design of God it's no accident that you have animals and you have to kill them that uh, the 
Number one, it, it continually shows the frailty and the temporalness of the physical life. That, you know, and, and, and a certain cheapness to the physical life. In other words, this animal here, the difference between us is, why are you wringing the neck of that chicken or, or shooting that deer out there? I mean, they've got all of these physical characteristics and all, but what we're saying, the only difference is, is the soul or the spirit. That's it. And the very fact that you're so quick to kill an animal and would not a human and, and a people that could shoot animals and, and eat them and all could not do it to a human is a recognition that there is something special about that human being. And I think it makes you think about that, the, the difference here. And then also the, the how temporal the uh, physical life is. And it, it actually, to me, kind of cheapens the whole body because the truth is we don't obviously we don't, eat, we don't want to eat human flesh. But I guess that your flesh has the same nutrients as an animal. Why wouldn't it? Well, why wouldn't our flesh have the same nutrition uh, as, as an animal? And so that it, it just, and you're, there you are uh, with the same, you, you cut that animal open, it's got a heart, it's like you got, he's got kidneys, and he's got liver, he's got brains, and, and we take and eat all parts of that heart. Eat his liver, eat, eat all these various parts, we make something out of the skin, and yet we have the parallel for all those parts. And so it's, it's almost, it totally is a put down to the physical. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I hadn't thought of that part, Mark, but I think it's probably the people that lived on a farm, and of course all through the centuries most people have been rural, you know, that have much more of a perspective about life. And then also, in societies where they really depend on the, the weather at just a certain time and where they live closer to the vest and all as opposed to an affluent society where we have had our surplus and everything like that, that I'd say all of that is conducive to being very concerned about God and if there is a God and an afterlife and all. I think that today we've got a lot of people that are living in a I guess I use the term of an unrealistic setting. They they really do not realize what's going on. They've got all these barriers and man-made hindrances to understand how how frail life is and how quick you could die and how just how I mean just how well, like the Bible says, life is a, a vapor. It's here and it's gone. They don't realize that. I mean, what they're concerned about are, are insignificant little things that uh, fashions and, and music and that kind of thing. That's what they're really tied up and concerned about. And they don't ever stop and consider how serious or, or how how insignificant some of those things are. We even have people make the statement about our young that, about whether or not they should even go to a funeral or whatnot because it may be a traumatic experience for them. When uh, all through the centuries, you know, that's been the experience of life itself. Yeah, I'd say that uh, in most of your cities, you could have a lot of people that live up to a certain age and never experience uh, death. The, uh, I forget how old I was, but see, I lived in the city. And then uh, my great-grandfather was my first experience with uh, death. But the interesting thing is he made a tremendous impression on me. Because, you know, that I really thought a lot of him. And then to see him there, and then he's dead. And the burial and the funeral and everything. It made just a light. I can still, in my mind, 
and I don't know how old I was. I was, I would have had to have been about 11, about 11, I guess, 10 or 11. I can still visualize him laying there on that bed, and and all the people coming in to see him, and the fact, because it was just interesting to me, in that that he was dying, and we all knew it. And the doctor would come in and give him something like for pain, and it's just like he just laid, and we were just waiting on him to die. And he did. He died. And that was it. I think some, the most traumatic death experience that a lot of people face is probably a pet. Because a, a pet is something that they've interacted with a lot, and it yeah. dies, and and somebody doesn't come and carry it off to a funeral home yeah. and take care of it. I mean, they have to actually do something with it. Oh, I think that's right. I remember, remember when we had the dog you shot mm -hmm. for us, and then, of course, now Patches, he, he was poisoned with him. Yeah. Patches, but Tim was just, the Jack had to shoot one of our dogs. That Tim was just really attached to him. We had two old hounds, and it had wandered up, and he'd pet, and he was just really attached, and the thing got the mange, and it was dying. And it just, uh, I don't know what all it had, but anyway, Jack uh, killed it. And we buried it. And man, that was, I don't remember how old Tim was. But that was uh, he carried that around. And then Patches, that he's just crazy about Patches, somebody poisoned him. And he cried, and Tim and I went out together, nobody else. And we buried old Patches out there, you know. And that was just, uh, it was. It, it, I think it does. It makes a good impression. And then you think of the statement that in Ecclesiastes 7, where it says, it's better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting because this is the end of all men and the wise will take it to heart. And he's actually saying spiritually, it's a good experience for you to, to go in and experience that. I know that uh, when I preached full time up here years past, I conducted a multitude of funerals. I, I was uh, one of the, uh, a lot of the, of the churches around, I was one of the few full time preachers. And so I got called on to do a lot of funerals. And I've never conducted a funeral but that it made an impression on me. I mean, it, it just is. You go in and sometimes you've known that person or even if you haven't constantly see the grief and there is a person that was alive yesterday and is dead today. And it's a really real impression on your mind. And, just, uh, and for me, I guess I've done it enough times that it doesn't leave me that I'm just aware of the fact that uh, you know, I'm going to die. And it's uh, that, uh, you know, that that's... That is going to be the most difficult thing that everybody does in life, to die. And, and sometimes I think about it from the standpoint of the people out here that seem to have so little interest, you know, and I think, how in the world can they live and know they're going to die and not at least be curious if there's something beyond this well, right here? Well, I think a lot of them don't even think about it. Well, they never even, I think one of them, we talk about the garbage that's on TV and the entertainment and all, but I'm not so sure that one of the worst things about some of it is it so monopolizes time that people don't have to think. They come in from work and you can just simply spend your evening in front of the TV and it's a passive type thing and then you go to bed. And you can, you can and, and there's so many ball games and entertainment going on that you can keep from thinking in our society if you want to. We just don't have time for we're out by ourselves and think. Well, it used to, if, if somebody in your family got old and needed some care, the family had to provide it. It was the kids or yeah. or whoever had to provide that care. And you saw, I mean, if if somebody got sick and stayed sick for several years, that was a constant. It was just all the time. You had to deal with that. And then you knew they were sick and weren't going to get better. And you had to provide for them and do for them. And you, I mean, you knew you were confronted with that death maybe for years before it happened. 
but today people don't have to deal with that. I, you know, another thing too that back before all these security type things we've got built into our system, the welfare and everything, I believe that that people knew that at any time you might have to have help from somebody else. I mean, when it come time to harvest your field, man, you might have a broken leg and, and your neighbor might have to do it for you. Or your barn may be burnt and the only way that you can get another one is for a bunch of us to chip in together, you know, and, and do. Or, or if there was a sickness in your family that you might need help for anything. And I think that kind of situation was helping that it caused people to work at being courteous and developing relationships because they knew that there was a need for one another. And, and it's, we have created a thing that allows people to think that they can be self-sufficient and just totally isolate yourself and they don't. there's no effort then to develop relations or anything like that. But I honestly believe that that was healthy, that, that the situation where people have to depend on one another. I've established myself as somebody who is a, you know, a good Christian and who is knowledgeable of the Bible and wind up teaching and having a part and everything like that. Just like on the one hand I mentioned there may be those that will have nothing to do with me, but there's a lot that will. And there are individuals just like uh, uh, I could go to the church where my children go to Cookville and worship with them and, and even function entirely with them and have no problem at all. And so there, there are those things that's good and, and a lot of times when somebody will ask me why do you go, you know, when you visit or whatnot to the Church of Christ as opposed to such and such, and I say that is the, the very reason. In other words, I simply that uh, have more freedom there so far as the written creed and the licensing of preachers and, and things of that nature. And then also, the emphasis is on Bible study itself. And another thing, and of course this is where I would agree with the Church of God, along the one thing here that the Church of God and the Church of Christ as groups have in common. As part of their teaching, they do not believe that Christians should be called Methodist, Baptist, etc. They believe you ought to be a Christian and that you ought to refer to yourself as members of the body of Christ or Church of God or Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. and, and so both of them have that in agreement.